Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. My guest today may take exception to that term because he's talking about people being finished and awakening implies there's more to go, but we'll discuss that. If you haven't watched any of these yet and would like to see others, there are over, well over 300 of them now. Go to batgap.com and look at the past interviews menu and you'll see them categorized in various ways. This show is made possible by the support of appreciative viewers and listeners, and so there's a donate button there on the site if you care to click it. So my guest today is Salvador Poe. He, at the moment, is in Tiruvannamalai, India, which is where Ramana Maharshi's ashram is. Uh, in fact, he can see Mount Arunachala out his window. He just informed me that he has a very nice little house there that he only has to pay $1,100 a year for. <laughs> I'm sure there's going to be a real estate rush in India after I announce that. Sal, rather than me just reading your bio, which would be kind of boring, why don't you just tell it to us, you know, the kind of stuff oh, you sent right. me by way of biographical information. Well, oh. I can start reading it if you want to get you going. Well, I don't know. I have to refresh my memory because I don't... Yeah, well, here, I'll get you started. Sal was a uh, successful musician from New York, making records, touring, having videos on MTV and doing film scores, when in 1997 he had a life-changing experience that propelled him on a single-pointed inquiry in search of enlightenment. Take it from there, Sal. Okay. Well, let me just say that, you know, I was born into a Catholic family and went to Catholic school in my younger years, but I never found something in there for myself of interest. It never struck me. Uh, when I was a teenager, I sort of just dropped all of the spiritual thing completely because I didn't feel any connection whatsoever. And then being a musician and, you know, rebellious youth and a rock and roller and everything, I just went on, you know, about 25 years of rock and rolling and partying, taking drugs, drinking. And that was my life. And I had no, literally no thoughts of any kind of spirituality or meditation or anything of that nature. I was strictly living in the life of a musician. By the time I was in my late 30s, I had had some success and a couple albums on MCA Records and some videos on MTV, and then uh, some film scores and stuff like that. But I also had been doing a lot of drugs, including heroin and freebase cocaine and, and all of it, you know, everything. It was part of that whole scene and lifestyle for me. And so uh, in my late 30s, I had a night of excess, you could say, I found myself wide awake all night, and then at noon I was still awake, and I lived on Avenue A in the East Village of New York City, and it was uh, probably a very nice February morning or something, with the sun streaming in my window at noon. I knew in that moment I had completely destroyed my life. With the amount of amphetamines or drugs or whatever I had in my body, there would be no way I could have fallen asleep. So something in that moment just thrust me down to my knees for a plea for help. But I had no belief in God or anything like that. That was so far out of my consciousness. So I just pleaded for help. And somehow, miraculously, I fell asleep in that moment. Yeah, you know, I just want to interject here that yeah. that kind of a story is not uncommon. I've talked to a number yeah. of other people who, in a moment of desperation, plead for mm -hmm. help to, to whom they, they know not. And then amazing things happen. You know, it's just once that intention is there. Exactly. That's the way I see it. I don't... I just think whatever happened in my own mind, this intention planted itself. Mm -hmm. There's no doer, so it just did. And that intention 
I fell asleep and three hours later I just somehow knew what to do. I woke up and I went to a bookshop in St. Mark's Place because I recalled this section of Eastern spirituality or something. And I looked in those books and recognized three teachers, Osho, Thich Nhat Hanh, and Krishnamurti. So I bought those books and I took them home. And from that moment on, all of those drugs, alcohol, cigarettes were finished completely with no effort, no struggle at all. And so it was a real life-changing moment. And from then on, I became, you know, a spiritual seeker on the path. I started meditating or trying to meditate a little bit and reading every book I could possibly get my hands on. It was a very, very clear-cut change in, my, in the flow of my life. Yeah, you mentioned in your book, which I intend to hold up, I forgot to take it off the shelf behind okay. me, that you had a, a very interesting and strange experience. You were on a bus and you spontaneously began going back in time through your life. And at each point along the way, progressing backward to when you were a very young child, you experienced your life circumstances as if you were there then, seeing out of the eyes of the person you were at that time. Want to talk mm -hmm. about that a little bit? Yeah, I was uh, actually on a bus coming back from Lenox, Massachusetts, because, well, that's another story, the first spiritual teacher I ever heard of, a friend of mine named Rob, who was a bookseller in front of my house, he used to turn me onto books like I Am That and all this. He told me there's a spiritual teacher named Andrew Cohen coming, so I said, great, never met one of those before. So I went and saw him speak, and then, you know, he said, oh, if you want to get to know me, he said, generally you can get to know me better. And I said, really? So I said, that's it. And I went up to his, the next day, I was up in Lenox at his place. And anyway, on the way back from that two-day trip on the bus on the way home, I had this strange uh, experience that was, seemed very peculiar to me at the time. You know, As you said, I just started going back in my life experiences, very visually seeing or placing myself in these circumstances as I got younger and younger. And I noticed in each one of those, seeing out of these eyes that everything around me has been changing and changed constantly. And my body was completely different each time. And yet I have not changed at all, mm -hmm. not even an iota. And I went way back, I mean, to my earliest possible memories. It just happened spontaneously. And then it fast forwarded till the future until I was 70, 80, 90 years old. And the same thing I noticed looking out of a very old, decrepit body that I have not changed one iota. I didn't know what that meant at the time because I had just begun reading and meditating. I just thought it was a strange experience. What it was really pointing to, I didn't come to know until years and years later, you know, after I my last teacher when I finally recognized some truths. There's a line from a Simon and Garfunkel song, The Boxer, after changes upon changes, we are more or less the same. <laughs> yes, that's true, isn't it? <laughs> We're exactly the same. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so Andrew Cohen, huh? Well, that's a whole other story. Then uh, you say in, in 98, you went to India for the first time on a spiritual retreat. That was an Andrew Cohen retreat. That okay. was about a year after I started meditating. You know, I heard that he was giving a retreat. And the way I am in my life, generally, I just, if something interests me, I just go. I, in a way, kind of fearless that way. I just get up and go and move and, and make a move. So I decide things kind of quickly. So I just was gone and I was in India. And that was my first spiritual retreat. And he was the first. He was never my teacher, but I did go on a few retreats with him. And they were always very amazing. You know, I had unbelievable mystical experiences and things that I had no even idea could possibly happen, even with all the drugs I had taken, psychedelics and everything. None of them could even remotely touch these experiences that I had. 
and that was very interesting. But of course, that gave me this concept that there's going to be some experience that's going to blow my head off, mm. and that's going to be enlightened forever. You know, it took me years to realize that that's not true, actually. You know. But even at this stage, uh, after a year or two or whatever of uh, you know not taking drugs and meditating, going on retreats, you must have felt a lot better in many respects. I mean, mentally clearer, physically healthier, that kind of thing. Absolutely. You know, I felt then I really had a life's. I don't believe in any purpose in life, but there was that feeling that there's purpose, you know, in this moment because I, I really, I knew that there was something for me to discover or at least inquire into. Right. And I was very one-pointed with that, very dedicated to it, you know. And so it really gave me something. And yes, of course, I was totally clean from all kinds of drugs and alcohol. So in that way, uh, yeah, it was good. In fact, you look remarkable. You must be in your fifties now, if if all this. Fifty-eight. 58. That's 59. amazing. You look fantastic for 58 or oh, 59. <laughs> Especially considering the 25 years of debauchery <laughs> that you went I through. I highly recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then you went through a series of teachers, UG Krishnamurti, Douglas Harding, Tony Packer, and so on. And what, what else is noteworthy along the journey that you'd like to bring up? You know, I went on a bunch of retreats like Vipassana retreats and Zen meditation retreats, Tony Packer retreats. And you know, I believed meditation was the path for me, and I meditated eight, ten hours a day for months and months at a time. Often, that was kind of what I considered the the way there, you know. And did you find so, it relatively easy and enjoyable to do that, or was did, did it take like I, I, sheer no, discipline was, to sit there? Yes, in a way. I don't I don't judge it like this anymore. But I don't think I was a particularly good meditator, where some people can sit down and be in some kind of blissful state. For me, it wasn't like that. Mm -hmm. Although those moments came. But for me, it was just really learning to just be there with whatever's appearing. You know, I didn't, I tried the different techniques like mindfulness and, and focusing on different things, but those all went away because what I ended up being my meditation is just to sit there and do nothing and whatever appeared, appeared and whatever mm -hmm. left, left. And so for me, that was kind of my meditation. It w and even though I think I thought at the time that I should be coming into some kind of state, although maybe it happened fleetingly, overall it was mostly just sitting there as the nonsense was flowing by, you know. Okay, and as I'm mentioning these things, I'm, I'm looking at his book, Liberation is the End of the Spiritual Path. I uh, didn't have it in, at my fingertips when I first started the interview, but I um, just wanted to mention that. Okay, so then you ended up uh, visiting a sage named Aja in southern India and, and stayed with that person for a couple of years, it looks like? Yes, uh, I had heard of him and read it in one of uh, what, what is Enlightenment magazines a couple mm -hmm. of years previously. So I, I went back to India and I looked him up and I went down to visit him. You know, he didn't speak English and he didn't like Westerners. So the first few days I couldn't get any connection with him at all. And so I was just meditating as usual. And then one day some uh, Westerners came from Ananda Ashram, which was another ashram that he liked. So he let them ask questions. So I thought this is my big opportunity to connect. And so after they asked some questions, I said, Aja, I have a question, which I really didn't. But he said, he looked at me up and down and he said, you don't have any questions. And I said, yes, yes, I do. You know, because I wanted to connect with this master who obviously, I mean, Aja was obviously just an incredible jnani. There's no doubt, any, no one can doubt it, you know. And so I just asked some silly question about liberation or something like that, you know. And then he just looked at me up and down and he said, don't worry, the light's going to come for you. And then, you know, I just started meditating there, which is what I did. 
and I meditated a lot. And, and he, he was either meditating or sweeping the mandir or something. And I think he liked that, so he invited me to, to stay there. And I had a room next, next to his, you know, for the most part of the next two years, although I was going back to the West sometimes, but for the most part, I was there for a couple of years meditating. And after that, let's see, it was, you did that for quite a while, and then Shiva Shakti, some teacher you went and stayed with, mm -hmm. right? And then we're making a long story short here. I guess, we, yeah, eventually the, the, the most significant thing that ultimately happened was Delano. Yeah, I was living with Shiva Shakti in, here in Tiruvannamalai, and she's a beautiful, silent sage. Uh, mm -hmm. When I first saw her, I w went reluctantly because by the time I got to Tiru, I was finished seeing teachers. I just wanted to meditate. Someone told me about her, and I reluctantly went, and I could see right away that she was another authentic sage. So I meditated a few days, and then I asked her son if I could move in there, and I did. I moved into the room next to hers. For nine or ten months, I lived there meditating as well. And there were all kinds of mystical experiences and stuff going on, you know. So what happens to me then is after all these years of meditation and all these, so many mystical experiences of all kinds, some lasting a minute, an hour, a week or a month, whatever, they all came and they all went. And I was wondering, when's the one going to come that lasts forever, you know? I learned this, the school of hard knocks, that that's no such thing as that. Yeah. There is no one experience that's going to come and last forever, but I had to learn it by experience. And so I was getting very frustrated towards the end of my time there and, and just thinking, this is not working. I'm, all these experiences are coming and going and where's this thing called liberation and why am I the same? So then I decided, I think I really just have to go to the Himalayas or something and find a cave and just meditate forever there in solitude. And just at that moment, someone passing through who had just been to Dolano told me about this teacher named Dolano. Something with the name resonated right away, I don't know why. And then I looked on her website and I saw the words, The Last Satsang, and I just had tears in my eyes. And I just knew how bold, The Last Satsang. And I was there two weeks later in Pune, sitting with her in her satsang. And on the first day of that satsang, I recognized my essential nature is free and always has been. And I also realized what I had recognized in that experience going back through my life, that I am always the same. I haven't changed at all. So now, after eight years of the path, now I knew what that experience had meant. Even though that recognition was very clear and very life-changing and a very definitive moment in time when there was a change for me and just relief and gratitude for months. And still, it took a couple of years after that before. I just knew it's over. There's nothing I need to do anymore. I'm just myself. There's no problem here. It wasn't over, it was over in that moment because the truth is already the truth. But as I tell the people that I work with, there's a momentum of conditioning and thoughts and beliefs and many ideas of spiritual ideas on the path that we've had our whole life. And this momentum has a bit of force. And to expect a simple recognition of your essential nature to end that momentum is not realistic. And I don't think it is for anyone actually. Good. Maybe in one in a million persons. You know? Yeah, I would agree. And so all in all, you spend about eight years going to various teachers and mm -hmm. meditating and all that stuff between stopping the drugs and this Delano, right? Yes, about that, yes. Now, yeah. looking back, would you say that you could have theoretically gone to Delano on day one and had the same result? Or did you somehow need to go through those eight years of all that other stuff before she could really be fruitful for you? Great question. And I would say definitely no, I would not have been able to at the time. 
the way I see it and the way I speak with the people that I work with. And it's different for everyone. For some people, it doesn't take a lot, but for some people, it takes 40 years of seeking. Whatever you need to go through yourself and experience and investigate is what you need. And I needed that, what I did. I needed to get to the point when I was frustrated with all of these experiences, as amazing as they were, because what I wanted to know was what's the truth? What's true? You know, what's this thing called liberation? Had I not been frustrated enough and still had some faith that these experiences meant something, I wouldn't be ready to be this simple and be nothing special, you know? So if, if people, let's say, who talk to you felt like going and being with some teacher or meditating eight hours a day or any of the things you did, would you discourage them or in any way even subtly belittle the significance of doing such a thing? Or would you say, go for it, you know, just or what would your attitude be? I never tell anyone what to do. There's no way I'm nowhere near arrogant enough to think I know what anyone else should do. <laughs> I don't even know what I should do, to be honest with you. <laughs> what I say to people is that the work that I do, I say, and this is only speaking from my view, I don't have any proclamations, but from the way I see it, the work that I do, it can you can be finished with seeking. You can be. But I say one has to be ready for that. And mm -hmm. if you feel that you need to go meditate, then you go meditate. No problem. Mm -hmm. No problem. When I'm working with someone, I ask that during the period that we're working together, I, I request and suggest that you don't meditate and don't read any other books because it just confuses the mind. You start comparing what I say to what someone else says and you start having philosophical debates. And what I'm showing is so simple and nothing, it takes no mentation whatsoever. It's just seeing something directly. So I do request if someone's actually working with me that they don't in that time period do anything else. Okay. And if they want, of course, that's their business. When you were with Delano and you had that recognition of your true nature and tears were streaming down your face and all that, can you elaborate a, a bit on exactly what your experience was? And I know it's not an experience, quote unquote, but can you elaborate on what actually happened in your subjective perspective? Well, well I can just say I had this feeling like it's over, mm -hmm. you know, it's over. There was, like you say, there is no thing. I didn't discover something new or have some experience. I had all the experiences before. It wasn't an experience in that way. It was kind of a moment of shifting from this seeker being here to this knowing that it's finished from it. It's just over. There's nothing more to seek. And it's this enormous amount of relief. I felt literally waves of relief coming off my body. You know? Right. And that's not like the, the incredible mystical transcendental experiences I had before, which were very visceral and very ecstatic and very physical. This was not like that. It was just more relief flowing from this body. You know, I could feel that. And that's the only sort of experiential aspect, I would say, that I had. And how many years ago was that now? Uh, that was uh, at the end of 2004, so very early 2005. So, so about 12 Over, years or so? Yeah, almost 12 11 years. or 12. Yeah. You say it took about two years to kind of integrate that or stabilize it or something. I know those words, and, and yeah. I don't really quite say it that way, but I understand it's, it's hard to use words. Or, but I would For say, the conditioning to kind of wind down. Yeah, you yeah. know, Ramana speaks about this fan. You know, when you turn the electricity off to a big ceiling fan like this, those are big fan blades up there. And, mm -hmm. and so you turn the, there's no more power going to that fan but yet the blades still spin for a while. Right. So now the blades are not thinking because I still have thoughts and the blades are not emoting because I still have emotions. Mm -hmm. The blade, I say anyway, that fan that slows down, that eventually stops, is the belief that there's something that I need to transcend here. 
or that there's something I'm lacking as far as a sense of wholeness or, or that I'm lower or higher than anyone else or there's something more for me to attain or some other experience. Those beliefs just finish. But as I say, they're very insidious and they have a lot of momentum because we've heard a lot of nonsense about ideas about this and that that we have taken for granted. So they keep playing for a while until the more and more you come to sort of know this doubtlessly that you lack nothing already. You're fine as you are, ordinary, unspecial. Eventually, I say, and it was just in hindsight for me, there was no moment. I just remembered sort of looking back and thinking, oh, yeah, oh, that's over. It had already been passed. So you say it took a couple of years for the fan blade to stop spinning for you. Yeah. 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 At uh, least a couple of years, I would say. But still, that was almost a decade ago. Do you feel like there's really nothing much has changed in your subjective experience over the past decade since the fan blade stopped spinning? Or is there still, in some sense, some kind of maturation or something taking place? Well, I'm sure there's probably always some, there's always learning, first of all. When I say the end of the spiritual path, I don't mean at all that there's more to learn about life or whatever. But I just say the end of the spiritual path or the end of seeking just means I know that there's nothing more for me to attain. I'm just myself. There's no need in me any longer to seek anything other than what I am now. That need is no longer here. You don't even have to seek that because you are that. Yeah, I don't seek it. I just know that's the truth. Right. And for better or worse, I'm a human being. I'm imperfect like everyone else. I just know there's no need for me to seek to attain something greater than what I already am here and now, you see. And so in that sense, I say there is the end of seeking. But I don't know. Is there any more maturation? I, I don't really, I wouldn't use those words myself, but probably in other ways, at least for sure, you know. And so when you refer to just being what you are, what you already are, what are you actually referring to? Are you referring to Salvador Poe, the individual That's guy? Right. Or yeah. are you referring to some deeper, more universal dimension, you know, the, the, the self with a capital S kind of thing or what? Both. Okay. Both. The whole package. And how I share it is when we start off in life and as seekers, we start off believing I am this body-mind organism, this exclusive body, exclusively. And the content of my mind, this story of self, which has to do with time, which we can also talk about, which is a complete myth. But we believe this exclusively as who I am. And then some of us get on the spiritual path and we come to some recognition that of awareness, which is the essence as some people may be called a substratum. And then some people get stuck there and think, I am not the body, I am awareness. And I say that's halfway around the picture myself. I was I reading that in your book I mean, just last night yeah. and finding myself enthusiastically agreeing. I mean, there are these people that sort of glom on to the absolute or, or possibly even just the concept of the absolute. I don't know if it's like their actual experience. And then just right. kind of dismiss right. the relative world as illusory or you know, insignificant. Yeah. You told that story in your book about this guy who had a, an infection <laughs> on his toe and it started oh, to yeah. spread and spread to the point where he was going to have to have his leg amputated. And he, he, he just kept saying, oh, I'm, ho, 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 I'm not the body, you know, it doesn't matter and whatnot. And the doctors were saying, take antibiotics, you're going to die, dude. And finally, he did. True story. Yeah, finally True he story. took some antibiotics, yeah. True story. So that's, that's halfway there. I say I am the body, and the Advaitin people can tell me I'm going to invite a hell for that, that <laughs> I am the body. But yes, I am, of course, because I've come full circle. I'm Sal. I'm not going to deny it. It's just a philosophical concept, I think, to deny that. But now, see, I know something a little different about myself than I knew from the beginning. I'm not just exclusively this. I know my essential nature is free, here and now. 
And so I don't n no longer need to feel transcendent of life as it is. Life, ordinary life as it is, I say, is freedom. And there is a lot of support in the scriptures as well for this. You know, the Hindus say Shiva, which is the unmanifest, and Shakti, the manifest. Shiva Shakti, one word. And Buddhists say emptiness equals form and form equals emptiness. They don't say there's emptiness in this form. They say this is one word. And Jesus, too, guess what, was a non-dualist because I, this form, and my Father, the Absolute, are one, yeah. he says. And you, you probably know that Upanishad saying, what is it, Purnamada, Purnamidam, Purnamudachate, Purnasya, that whole thing that goes on, this is full, that is full, both are full. Mm -hmm. Take yeah. fullness from fullness and fullness remains. That's very true. And so the way I see it now, everything that I, what we seekers try to do is transcend our humanity because we're dissatisfied with ourselves because we feel we lack something. We don't like many of our experiences, which are unpleasant, which still can be unpleasant for me as well sometimes. But we don't like those, so we think we have to transcend and get to some nirvanic state of transcendence. But I say this is, it's not a really immature attitude. I say the true attitude is this is the transcendence right mm -hmm. here. This is it. There's nothing further. There's nothing behind the curtain. This is it. Mm -hmm. And once that's really recognized and reconciled, then what more is there to seek? This is it. And then life goes on ordinary, very ordinary. I'm human. I have no claims of specialness whatsoever, you know. <laughs> I just am at ease with how, who I am. It's Carly Simon saying, these are the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> that's great, isn't it? Beautiful. I would throw in one proviso, which is that, okay. well, first of all, let me just say, I don't know how tuned in you are to what other spiritual teachers are doing these days, but there has definitely been a shift in, in my observation from a sort of a overemphasis or a chorus of teachers singing the tune of Neo-Advaita in which, you know, you are the absolute and the relative, you're not the body, you're not the person, you're all that stuff, to teachers talking about embodiment and integrating the spiritual dimension into our actual human lives. A lot of people are talking about that these days, and I think out of need, because a lot of people felt dissatisfied with the sort of disembodied, you are the absolute message. I don't know exactly what that means, to be honest with you. But for me, it, it feels a little bit still like a bit of a psychological game. What does? Uh, this embodiment thing, you know, what, I'm not even sure exactly what it means, but what I can say is that I feel and the work that I do is that when one is ready to be finished, you just jump and there's nothing to embody. You recognize that you are already what you've been seeking. And then, as I say, it does take some time for it all to become reconciled, which is really just doubts, which is doubts. Because when I hear the word embodiment, I don't know, maybe I'm mistaken by this, Rick, but I get this sense of a moralistic thing, like you should look in a particular way or behave in a particular way, you know. I don't think that's the way they mean it, at least the people I've okay. been talking to. It's more like people who have tried to hide out in the transcendent or teachers who have espoused that sort of thing. It's a kind of an antidote to that. You know, you're not just oh, the transcendent, you're also the imminent, you're the manifest. Oh, you, you've okay. got a life, you know, and you need to yeah. sort of integrate both dimensions. Okay, that makes sense. And, and in that sense, I'd say that's basically what I'm saying as well. I've heard of a lot of modern teachers, and I know a little bit, at least the flavor of some of them, but I don't really know anyone else's work so much these days. But that does sound similar to what I'm saying. I don't know what their approach is to making that happen, though. Yeah, no, it's different. People are going at it different ways, I guess. Yeah. And another thing I just wanted to mention, based on what you said a minute ago, is that one thing I kind of that rubs me the wrong way a little bit sometimes when I hear people say it is there's a sort of a, 
a dumbing down in a way of what realization is when people just insist that who you are, what this is, the, the or, your ordinary perception as it is, that's it. Don't look for anything more. I don't think that's quite what you're saying. Correct me if because, I'm wrong, but because you well, can say that to everybody in the world and then fine, everybody in the yes. world is enlightened. You know, well, Idi Amin was enlightened and Adolf Hitler was enlightened <laughs> just experiencing what they experienced. It, you know, it does a disservice to what we're talking about. I totally hear exactly what you're saying, but there's two parts of it because that is true. And I speak again from my view, my ordinary consciousness now, after I've done all the drug consciousnesses and all the mystical experience consciousnesses, all of these altered states of consciousness and states, I say this ordinary consciousness to me is the ultimate. There's nothing more. Okay, so in one sense, I say that's true, but you can't just tell someone that and have them be finished someone needs to really see it for themselves, the implications of what that's pointing to. They have to be willing and able to realize truly that they're complete and whole as they are. And notice that their essential being is free, freely aware. It's a real recognition, you see, and, and in a sense, a, a realization. It just can't be said and then say Idi Amin is, is enlightened too, <laughs> because of course it's not. But I'm not enlightened either. There's no enlightened person, but there is a recognition that happened in this body-mind that, that I am the source, not separate from the source itself. And that doesn't make me extraordinary, though. It still makes this consciousness just as ordinary. Yeah. Does that That makes it? sense. I, I think you're saying it. And, and I think that Ramana Maharshi or the Buddha or any of those people could have said, yep. yeah, hey, this is my ordinary consciousness and it's completely natural and ordinary. There's nothing extraordinary or super-duper about it. Um, this is just natural life. And yet, if the average person were to suddenly somehow jump into their shoes, so to speak, you know, and see the world through their eyes, it probably would seem rather extraordinary compared to what the person had been accustomed to experiencing. And yet, once one is living that way, it's, it's the most natural thing. I mean, it would probably seem extraordinary largely because of, the, like you said earlier, the tremendous relief <laughs> that one would experience. <laughs> Maybe, and to be honest, I really have no idea if that would happen. If, of course, that can't happen, but what you just described, someone going and, and seeing through Ramana's eyes, I actually don't know if there would be any surprise. I'm not saying there wouldn't, but I don't know if there would either. But it could be what you say, it could just be this unbelievable relief feeling. Because I don't know Ramana's experience, but I do hear what these people say, and they say, I'm not different from you. I just have come to know something and they say I am ordinary, and I believe they're telling the truth, to, to be honest with you. I don't proclaim to have any idea what anyone else's experience is, you know, but I hear what they say, and I know my own experience, and it does ring a bell to me in that way. Yeah. I was a student of Maharshi Mahesh Yogi for many years, and he often used to say that so-called enlightened consciousness is normal. You know, that's the normal state, and anything Less than that is, you could say, subnormal or something, but he would say there's nothing extraordinary about it. It's, this is the normal, natural state that everyone mm -hmm. should be living. I agree, but I would say definitely it's the natural state. I would not say it's the normal state. Though. No, the normal but, yeah, state right. But, yeah, you're right. <laughs> by, if, if by normal we mean average and, and typical yes. and so on. No, yes, exactly. yeah, I agree. It, I'd <laughs> say it's the natural human state. I also even call it the natural human state is free. When you come out of the womb, before all the, all the pathologies start getting programmed into your brain, when you come out of the womb, I'd say this is the natural state of consciousness, but it's still very human and ordinary. It just hasn't been corrupted yet by the, the original sin of separation. 
and the pathology of thinking there's something wrong with me for all these years. Yeah, you often refer to the womb. <laughs> That's the sort of tabla rasa view of you know what we are as babies. And I don't know, you may be right. I kind of tend to side with the notion that of reincarnation and that we come in with all sorts of impressions, even though we seem oh, very okay. pristine as a baby. There's actually all kinds of baggage that we bring in with us, otherwise we wouldn't be here. But who knows, that's a philosophical debate that we don't need to get into. That is true, because I have no recollections of my past lives or future lives. So to me, that doesn't even, I'm not denying it, because I really don't know. I haven't died yet, so I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. So I can't deny it, but I don't personally lean towards that kind of philosophical structure. And I never believed in reincarnation, honestly, until recently someone told me I was Julius Caesar in the past. And then I thought, hey, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, I'll go for that. <laughs> Actually, he, I don't know if he was such a good guy. No, that's true. <laughs> I, I saw a cartoon recently where it was a tombstone and it said, reincarnating soon, don't touch my stuff. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. <laughs> so as far as that kind of thing goes, re reincarnation and, what, and anything like that, I sort of am very simple, you know. I honestly, and I mean this genuinely, the only thing I actually know is this here and now, this moment. I don't mean I know anything about it, like what it means or anything like that. I just, there's this knowing that's here, that's aware clearly, which I say is my essential being. And the only thing I can actually know is now. So my mind just doesn't even go to anything philosophically before or after life and that kind of thing. And it also doesn't deny it because I just don't know, you know. No, that's totally a fair thing to say. Yeah. Personally, I think that people arguing and even fighting wars over things that they believe but don't actually know through their own experience has been one of the greatest uh, follies yeah. of, of mankind, you know, throughout the his throughout history. You got that right, yeah. absolutely. Isn't it true? And Douglas Harding, who was such a beautiful guy, I met when he was 93 years mm. old. He has my favorite saying of all times, can't you see I'm just space for you to be? Mm -hmm. And what, are, what do we usually say to each other? Can't you see I'm just a psychological mess for you to deal with? Or can't you see I'm a bundle of beliefs that if you don't agree with me, you're wrong and I have to kill you? Douglas Harding says, can't you see I'm just space for you to be? And so this is an unknowing. This is not this clinging on to self-structure and belief about me, me, me all the time. This is such a beautiful saying that he has there, you know. Yeah, no, that's great. I concur. And I don't know about you, but it's not that I don't believe things, but I just don't hold them tightly because if it's something that I don't actually know or experience, who knows? Sounds like an interesting theory. Maybe it's true, but I, I'm not going to like beat you up over it. Yeah, I guess that's the same for me. But honestly, I just don't care to believe anything. I, I honestly don't. My girlfriend is the first to tell you she can't. I, can't, I don't believe in anything. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a skeptic, you know, or I just don't believe. And I say I don't deny either because I don't know. But I'm not going to believe in things unless I see for myself right here and now. And this here and now, I don't have to believe this, do I? This is obviously true. This moment. There's no need for belief or thought or philosophy or anything for this knowing that's here now. Yeah. And so I'm very content like this. It's good. The difference between a skeptic and a cynic is that the skeptic takes everything as maybe theory, you know, who knows, might be true, might not. Whereas right. the cynic says, can't be true, doesn't fit my worldview. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm very accustomed to that viewpoint for sure. Here's a question that came in from a listener. That's from Dan. He says, would it be fair to say that when you felt the you, that you were finished, quote unquote, that there was a transition from being the experience to being experience itself? 
what he just described was when I knew it was finished, that wasn't even an experience at all. There was a knowing. Mm. And, and, and another thing I often say is that what I share anyway has literally nothing to do with experience in any way whatsoever. It's a know what's true and knowing what's true will set you free. The saying is not experience something or bliss that's never been the saying. So I call this a shift of knowing. In the moment when I recognized my essential nature with Dolano, it also wasn't an experience other than the relief that poured off the body because of this shift. She doesn't call it this, I call it a shift of knowing. I now knew something different, essential about myself. Not as knowledge, though, or any kind of philosophy, but very directly, as just as I know this moment now, mm -hmm. I knew that here I am free. When I say that, when that sort of recognition happened that, oh, it's over, it was, an, again, another knowing of that sort like that. Perhaps you could uh, riff a little bit on the distinction between knowledge and experience as you're alluding to it. Maybe I'll just set you up for that by you know, saying that okay. ordinarily experience involves I am experiencing this. I'm experiencing an angel, or I'm experiencing a football game, or I'm experiencing some, there's this kind of three-part structure to it. I, the experience, and the process of experiencing. And, yes. uh, and even with regard to knowledge of some sorts, like I know a lot less about algebra now than I did in high school when I was actually studying algebra. So there's, there were these bits of information or knowledge that, I, I, that were more lively in my awareness then that are less so now. Contrast what I was just saying with the kind of knowing that you're actually referring to. Okay, great. That's a very good question. I'll use it from my own life experience. When I had all of those amazing experiences, I always thought that, that ex the experience was the thing that I was looking for. And you were kind of hoping that one of those amazing things would become 24-7. Yes, because, but the experience was an, obje an object in my perception whether a feeling perception or a visual or whatever a transcendental perception mm -hmm. what i never realized in those moments that i am aware of this right. i never turned it around to, to question who is aware of this incredible experience which i believed would be the enlightenment so what i say is that i don't call it knowledge i call it a knowing this knowing as if we to use my word to have a holiday now and see here and now this knowing is self-evident it doesn't need an other it doesn't need an object other than it itself, which is not an object. This knowing is not an object. It's just, I know myself, not subject-object. You probably can get I'm following that. you. Yeah. I mean, it's a good point because I am having this experience, I'm having that experience, I'm having that. And it's like, it's all about the experiences that I am having. Yeah. But what about the I who is having those experiences? Exactly right. And honestly, that's why I feel we suffer unduly and hope and nostalgize and reminisce and, and hope for the future and, and suffer the things that come because we put up, not that experiences have no value, I say they do in a relative sense, but I think human beings put a pathological amount of value on experiencing, on the experiences themselves, to the extent of overlooking who I am, the essence of all experiences. Yeah. And that's because, I think, well, I mean, we can bring in the famous movie screen analogy, which Raman and, yeah. and many others have used, which I'm sure most listeners are familiar with, where the movies are projecting onto the screen, and the movies are very obvious and interesting, and they're moving, and they're fun, and they're exciting, and they're this and they're that, but they totally overshadow the screen. So analogously, yes. all the sensory experiences overshadow consciousness. We identify with the experiences rather than 
knowing who we are. So maybe you could talk a bit about why you think that is and how to sort of recognize the screen, as it were, underlying the changing experiences. Well, I don't really know the whys about things because I don't really ask why, but I can see that all of us, almost probably without exception, have fallen into this, at some young age, few months or whatever, this identification of a separate self. In my view, when we come out of the womb, we're just aware and there's, we don't know we have a head. How would we know we mm -hmm. have a head? We don't know that we're separate and our mother is separate. We don't know we have a name until after several months or however long of our mother calling our name. Eventually, we make the original sin. Ah, I am Sal. And then from there on, it's just one misidentification after another piled on. And we are not shown that this is not essentially true. It's all taken for granted. So we just go through life taking it for granted because we haven't been shown another way. And why is it that? I don't know why that is, but it seems to be the way it is. And will it always be this way? Maybe it will always be this way. But I do know it was certainly that way for me until I got to the point where I experienced everything that I could experience. And I was tired of experiences. And then I just wanted to come to rest in something more essential, you know. I can suggest why it might be, and that is that the, okay. sen the senses by their very nature are designed to draw the attention outwards. And that which is out, so to speak, is concrete, or appears to be. And it's sort of gross, and, and, and the gross kind of overshadows the subtle. And so, you know, we, we never sort of take the 180 degree turnaround to recognize the core of the, of the situation. That sounds yeah. right to me, absolutely. That sounds right to me. But I wouldn't say that's a why. I would say that's you're recognizing how we actually function. It's the mechanics that's, I'd of say it. That's, that's the mechanics, the function. I'd say it's totally true. The thoughts get very powerful, the emotions, the experiences, the sensory objects. They're very alluring, aren't they? Yeah. They're very alluring. And until we get to the point where we're ready to, or we've had enough or whatever, or something just shifts by itself or somebody points out something. Until that happens, we just take it for granted that that's the way it is. Yeah. You know, and we overlook our essential nature. And look at the extent to which we can get lost in it. I mean, we, oh, yes. we can be flying airplanes in the buildings and doing all kinds of horrible <laughs> things, you know, just because we're so caught up by the movie. Yes, exactly. And you know what? It's no one's fault. That's just the way it is, isn't it? You know, there, and that's a whole other thing that I speak about, this thing about not being a doer here, no free will. But I see that I did not create myself. Why did that happen to me? It's just what happened. I got very lost in all of that until I was no longer. And I didn't create either. It's just what happened. So the world is the mess because of human pathology, but there really is no one to blame who created it all, you know what I mean? It's just the way it is. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I was reading that in your book last night, and you told the story about how some thieves broke into Ramana's ashram and uh, beat him with a stick to mm -hmm. such, so severely that he actually had a, a limp or a, a leg problem for the rest of his life. But he said, he, he told all of his followers, don't take any action against them. They're just acting out of their karma and just leave them alone, let them go. And isn't that what Jesus said too? Jesus said, yeah, forgive turn, them. Turn the other cheek, do. yeah, forgive them, they know not what they do. Jesus knew there was no free will because Jesus is thinking, I don't know why I wanted to know truth. I have no idea. It's just what happened for me. And I don't know why they didn't want to know truth. It's just what happened. So he's saying there's no doer. So then compassion, you know, recognizing there's no... There, there, I say the best reason to come to recognize that there's no free will and there's no chooser and no doer is not to have some experience, but it's the birth of real compassion. 
to see that I did not create myself for good or bad. And if I didn't create myself, then no one else did either. So who am I going to start condemning and judging and demonizing? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Not to say that as a society, we have to let people run crazy right. and run amok. We have to do something. But then again, the way our American culture is, we're about revenge. We're about vengeance. We're about punishment. And we're about incarceration. And to me, that's pathological as well. There's no compassion there, is there? No, and, and we're particularly guilty of it in the United States, where per, cap yeah. per capita we have far more people incarcerated than any other country yeah. in the world, including communist China and so on. On the free will issue, why don't we play with this a little bit since we're on it? I would have to say that in my experience and understanding, which may be, which admittedly is limited and is subject to revision, there's a sense that on the spectrum of possibilities of, of being completely unable to have any influence over your life or having complete freedom to do whatever you want, there's a certain sort of little segment of that spectrum where you have some wiggle room and you do seem to have discrimination and choice. You seem to be, at least I seem to be, able to say, well, I think I won't do that. I'd rather do this. And according to how you use that wiggle room, you kind of move your life in the direction of greater freedom or greater bondage. Does that resonate at all with your experience, or do you think that I'm kind of like... Um, I hate to be... Uh, no, that's all right. I mean, we, we can disagree. I would say no. I would say no. It yeah. doesn't. I would say there's still a concept that there's a doer in here, a separate self that is creating and choosing. Yeah. And I would say, and humbly so, that there's no such thing. There's no such thing. Not only is there no chooser, there are no choices. The thought, I want to have a hamburger, appears in your mind. And then the next thought is, no, a hamburger is not good for me. And then you can say, well, I subtly move toward the hamburger. But no, that's just the thought that appeared. And from that thought that appeared, whatever is the dominant thought in the moment, the action will follow. Yeah. And it's all just happening. There's no one in here separate like a mad scientist creating it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I hear you. And there are plenty of scriptures that say that and, and plenty of friends of mine who say that and so on and so forth. It's just not totally my experience yet. But, um, you know, it's an yeah. interesting thing to play with. Because I say these things can be easily rectified with, with proper inquiry, actually. Mm -hmm. this is, and this is what I do. I do inquiry with people so, so that they can come to see for themselves. And if I'm telling a lie, they'll see that I'm lying. But if they come to see for themselves, then they know for themselves. And who cares what I say? It doesn't matter. Right. Well, they that, come to know for themselves. And that's all that I care about and all that really matters, you know. Absolutely, yeah. Here's, here's something from your book. You said, whether you're lost in the thoughts or not, the truth is you're free. You know this because the moment a holiday happens, you see that it is still true, always. And, and your use of the word holiday is like to sort of just take a little break from the usual engagement and activity. Just and stop just, attending, stop focusing for a moment. Yeah, just, just sort of pause. The Bee Gees wrote a great song called Holiday. You've got me singing it lately and back in the 60s. But in any case, the point here, whether you are lost in thoughts or not, the truth is you are free. Yeah, but there's a long way from reading that line and kind of understanding it to actually yep. being really free. And all too often I see people who take an intellectual understanding like that and either mistake it or let it suffice for the, the actual reality of freedom rather than taking the steps necessary to make that their living experience. You know what I mean? Again, again, and I, that last word you just said, I was just about to say, because it goes back to what I say, it has nothing to do with an experience. I can be lost in so-called lost attending to thoughts for an hour. It doesn't mean anything to me. I, I don't care. 
I don't think it means something that I don't know who I am. And my metaphor is, you know there's no Santa Claus, right? Mm -hmm. If you see a Santa Claus in a Macy's window and you're looking at that Santa Claus, you have to say, there's no Santa Claus, there's no Santa Claus, there's no Santa Claus, there's no Santa Claus. No, you know there, it's finished. You know there's no Santa Claus. You can look at 500 Santa Clauses and you still know there's no Santa Claus, right? So what we do on the spiritual path is we believe we have to get in this state of awareness. And if I focus on thoughts, it means I'm not enlightened because now I'm not knowing myself. So if I'm working on music 12 hours a day, I don't know who I am. I'm working on music. No, I, I agree with you. And I'm not saying that freedom entails being sort of constantly aware of some, you know, unbounded state or some such thing or not letting yourself have thoughts. I think you can be, as you say, focusing on music 12 hours a day or running through an airport or doing any number of things. But there's a difference between doing that in a state where the movie is totally overshadowing the screen mm -hmm. and doing that in a state where the screen shines in its own integrity despite uh, the intensity of the movie. Well, you see, that sounds like separation to me, though, Rick. Because if there's a, an intensive thought stream in my head, that's what I'm focusing on. Mm -hmm. It could be a minute or 10 minutes or whatever. And there's not someone separate saying, I am aware uh, that I am focusing on these thoughts. No, no, no. If you that, say saying, that, that muddies it up, you know, because I'm not saying it's yeah. something you say or something you mentally... So that would just be another mental activity that you're adding into the mix, you know, where, okay, I have this mental recognition that I am the blah, blah, blah. And I'm not saying it that way. Well, let me ask you this. When you sleep at night, when, you, when Sal goes to bed, is that it for eight hours, total obliteration, or is other, there... Other, other than the, the dream state, in deep sleep, I'm not consciously aware, but I know I'm aware. Why? Because if you call my name, I'm going to wake up, so I must be aware. But I have no, personally, I have no memory of the deep sleep state, but it doesn't mean I'm not aware. I must be, because if you call my name, I'm going to wake up. Well, maybe so calling your name shifts you into the waking state, uh, from the sleep state. There has to be a seed of awareness there to hear that, to wake it up. Something has to be aware that it was called, yeah. and then that shifts me into it. So, okay, I make a, a slight delineation, which is kind of a subtle delineation, actually, between consciousness and awareness, and aware, not mm -hmm. awareness. Aware is the deep, in my view, again, I say, I make no proclamations here, I just speak in my own view. But in the deep sleep state, I am not conscious, right. I admit. But I, have, I am aware because if you call my name, I'm going to become conscious and then I'm going to become consciously aware. Yeah. So that's, that's the delineation that I make there. Okay. Well, the reason I brought it up is that um, just to illustrate that perhaps there are degrees of awakening which are so well established that even the Thomas of sleep won't overshadow them. For instance, here's something from, uh, I believe it was Nisargadatta. Someone said, what do you do when asleep? And he said, I am aware of being asleep. Is sleep not a state of unconsciousness? Yes, I am aware of, of being unconscious. And when awake or dreaming, I am aware of being awake or dreaming. I do not catch you. What do you mean? Let me make my terms clear. By being asleep, I mean unconscious. By being awake, I mean conscious. By dreaming, I mean conscious of one's mind, but not of one's surroundings. And then he says, well, it is about the same with me, yet there seems to be a difference. In each state, you forget the other two. Well, to me, there is but one state of being, including and transcending the three mental states of waking, dreaming, and sleeping. And I have a whole file of like dozens of quotes like this from sages indicating that a time comes when 
aware, as you call it, you don't like to make a noun of it, is, is so sort of profoundly enlivened that it persists 24-7 regardless of whether you're awake, asleep, or dreaming. I've heard that too, and I am skeptical because it's not my experience, and I don't know if actually that's true or not. But I've also heard Ramana say that in deep sleep he doesn't remember, you know, or or he says it in general. You don't, you have no memory from deep sleep. I don't know the quote. No, that would make so, sense because to have memory, you'd have to have some waking state action going on. Your your mind have, has to I be see, working. You have to have, you uh, have to have some business. To be honest with you, Rick, I don't know. Maybe what Nisargadatta is saying is true for him in his experience. And again, I only can speak about what I call freedom or liberation. And that's just knowing here and now that I lack nothing. You know, I'm fine as I am, perfectly normal and ordinary. You know, okay. the seeking is finished. I haven't achieved some new state of consciousness or new level of awareness or something like this. I'm not denying that those states maybe exist. Perhaps they do. But to me, their states and their experience, and I just don't, I'm not speaking about experience at all myself. All right, I'll let that one rest. <laughs> yeah. Here's something from a fellow in Brazil. He's from Sao Paulo, named Felipe. Uh, he says, when I come to the realization of the understanding you are pointing to, at the point of crossing it, I feel fear of letting go. Working as a computer scientist, I feel like I will lose control over complex things. Is it possible to live a life with a lot of obligations and complex knowledge, such as programming and mathematics, etc., and also be in that space of, space of total freedom? Absolutely, and it's not a space of total freedom anyway. It's just a knowing that you're free, and then you carry on living. I work on music on my computer, and it's highly technical, highly technical programs I'm using, completely ordinary consciousness. So, yes, I'd say definitely. And I would also say that the fear is that because there's an idea somewhere in there that you will lose the ability to do those things, that you're going to lose something. But I say you're not going to lose anything. You're going to just know what's true and you'll function much better, actually. I function better on music and everything else because I'm not busy being pathologically insane half the time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. I, I often like to bring up that there's no reason why a neurosurgeon or an airline pilot couldn't be an awakened, yes. awakened being. It's not that they're going to be course. in some wishy-washy, dreamy state and not be able to fly no. the plane or perform exactly. surgery. And if, if you are in a wishy-washy, dreamy state, I say you haven't really come full circle. Full right. circle is ordinary, you know, ordinary, just finish. One thing you say in your book is, uh, I think this is more or less a direct quote, they say you need to purify yourself so you'll be ready to receive enlightenment or merge with the divine to purify the mind of vasanas tendencies karmas and all of that this mind is never going to be pure how could it it's got a lifetime of billions of pieces of information how are you going to get rid of them all i'd like to suggest that um, the kind of impurities that are referred to as vasanas and so on are not bits of information it's not that you couldn't be a very learned person and no, reach exactly. enlightenment or something you can be full of information but it's more like the deeper impressions that get formed. For instance, to take an extreme example, someone who is suffering from PTSD or something, um, they've done MRI scans, magnetic resonant imaging and of, the, of the brain, and find that they actually have functional holes in the brain, not literal holes, but functional holes, where the stress has shut down certain parts of the brain. And that makes it difficult to function in everyday life, much less um, sort of awaken to enlightenment or mm -hmm. higher consciousness or something. So this whole purification thing has to do with 
And they've actually done MRI scans on long-term meditators and seen that those functional holes are healed or are, are restored to their proper functioning. So I would suggest that all those years, eight years you did of meditation and this and that, had a very purificatory f effect on you after the 25 years of drugs and so on that made it conducive for you or made you more likely to undergo the sort of shift you did. So there is something to the purification thing, I'm, I'm trying to say in a nutshell. Okay, I think, I, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. First, I'd like to say a couple things, I think, about that. The things that we try to purify ourselves of, like greed and envy and, you know, comparison and, and these kind of things that are pretty much malignancies to ourselves and to others. We've tried that through the methods of psychology and everything. And I say there's limited effect as long as we still believe we lack something. There's something lacking. So if I feel that I lack something in some way or I'm not complete and whole, then it's very uh, natural for greed or envy to appear because I feel I lack something. So I say that ultimately when someone is ready to jump off and come to see for themselves that they in actually in truth lack nothing. They actually in truth are complete and whole already. When someone comes to see something like this, they then there's really no soil is there for greed to appear why would there be why would there be greed if you know you lack nothing you know and if you know that you're essentially the same as everyone why would there be comparison and envy that kind of thing mm -hmm. they they just don't really grow it's not trying to get rid of anything it's coming to see that for yourself that you are free you see so so i speak to people who have done whatever work they've done but still have the there's a sense of lack still and because of that sense of lack those things can appear but when you really come to see that you lack nothing i say for the most part you're much more benign and those kind of so-called impurities for the most part are not rearing their ugly heads well when you had that sort of on your knees moment in on avenue a in the east village you probably did feel that you lacked something and you went out oh, yeah. you went out and tried to find a solution to that lack, uh, not by being greedy or avaricious or, or anything, but by, you know, genuinely kind of seeking knowledge. Mm -hmm. And and you went through a purificatory period, I would say, for about eight years, where uh, you worked out a lot of stuff that had encumbered you. Would you agree with that or no? I, I wouldn't disagree with it because I, I wouldn't maybe use those words or maybe see it in that way, but I'm not going to, I wouldn't disagree with it either because maybe that is what happened. But I do know for myself at the end when I was, you know, when I realized that I'm not lacking anything, those kind of things, they didn't need to be purified any longer. They, for the most part, just don't appear. Right. Well, maybe they had so, been purified sufficiently to allow you to have that recognition. Uh, maybe. Okay. I'll, I'll give you that one. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not just talking about purity in some kind of moral sense or psychological sense or anything like that. I'm actually talking about physiological transformation, which has been documented to a great extent. Okay. The, the nervous system itself gets sort of twisted and turned in different ways by life's experiences. Okay. And those, those twists and turns can kind of be unwound and enable the nervous system to function in a way that I would say is more conducive to the kind of clarity that you're um, pointing to. Okay, that's true, but let me speculate something, because sometimes in, in, in the course of someone's lifetime, that happens that they have an immediate, let's say, immediate instantaneous awakening. Very true. 
They Sometimes they're years. drunk in the gutter or something. They have that kind of awakening. Yes. Yeah, it happens. Yes. And they haven't done years of purification, but that awakening makes them realize something, that they're fine. And so then you can say in that moment, those things have been purified. I think that's very rare, but I've heard of stories like that, you see. No, so so I, I don't know yeah. if there's a cause and effect like that, this purification process, cause and effect. I sort of see it that whatever I did on the path, I had to do to come to see that it didn't work. Then I just sort of gave it all up. That's my personal experience. Uh, but again, I, I'm not going to deny what you're saying because I, I'm not an expert. In this yeah, that's that okay. I'm just sort of playing devil's advocate a little bit because it makes well, it cool. a, makes it a more interesting interview than if I were just sit here yeah, and smile and say, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to play devil's advocate on the point you just made, I would say it did work. It just didn't work in the way you were expecting it to. You know, you were expecting to some to yeah. achieve one of these flashy experiences perpetually, yes. and that yeah. never happened and never would have happened. Yeah. But somehow or other, in a roundabout way, everything you went through brought you to the point where something you hadn't expected was able to happen. Absolutely. In that sense, you're absolutely right. I fully agree. I had to go through whatever I had to go through until I got to the point where I just was finished with doing it and still dissatisfied, found someone who could show me something that's very essential. Yeah. Adyashanti is another case in point. You probably know him. He, uh, he, said, he also said he was a pretty lousy meditator, but he, he really gave it his all for many years. He struggled and that struggled. Was like, that's, like, that's like me. Yeah, yeah. Struggled and struggled. And finally, he, he reached a point where he kind of like gave up, and then, then something happened. <laughs> I think that's very true for most of us. And I don't know how it happened for him, if it was spontaneous or his teacher help. But for me, it was at the same point. But then someone came in. And very simply, you know, at that point, they can just push you over the edge of the cliff, you know, with the simple inquiries or something, which is where, what I do. That's the people I can work that I can be helpful for, you know. Incidentally, we're almost at 100 online views. Oh, we just hit 100. That's the, that's the highest number I've ever had of people watching live during the interview. So congratulations. Are you kidding me? No. Wow. I'm <laughs> and, shocked. Yeah, and so <laughs> folks who are watching, feel free to send in questions if you have any. There's a form at the bottom of the upcoming interviews page. Your Is questions it? are great, Rick, and I'm really, really happy to speak to you about these questions. And some of them are nice and challenging, too, because I don't claim to know everything. I just don't. So I'm happy that you bring up challenging questions as well. Let's get, let's find out what's true, you know? Yeah. Well, I work that way and yeah. I certainly don't claim to know everything and I, and I'm not afraid to appear ignorant and to, to sort don't of don't. butt my ignorance up against somebody else's knowledge if, if that's what it is in order to help to clarify it. I'd rather err on the side of feeling that I know less than I do rather than more than I actually may. You know what I mean? That's very uh, genuine, I think. And I feel the same way because when I was a seeker boy, I was knowing everything, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was never so arrogant as when I was a humble seeker. I thought, you know? <laughs> You're more humble than everybody, right? Yeah, I was. <laughs> Here's a point that I think you touched on earlier, but it would, wouldn't hurt to, to dwell on it a little bit again. You said, Liberating this mind does take time because it is a habit, a whole lifetime of habit, so it's not even natural for it to end immediately. Let's dwell on that a little bit more because some people might feel frustrated that they kind of understand what you're saying here, but they just feel this nagging sense that they don't totally get it. Okay, and we, we did speak about it before. Many people have had so-called awakening experiences and maybe even recognized their essential nature, but have gone right back into uh, the, I don't know, ignorance or whatever, or believing in self again. 
believing mm -hmm. itself, even with the work that I do. So I'm able to, when I'm working with someone, especially one-on-one, -on -one, have the, help them to have a recognition here and now that they're free, essentially, that they're, and it really works. And they all say it really, not all of them, but most of them say they really can recognize this and I can see that that's true. Then I give them the audio, they go listen, and they tell me a week later that, oh, I got lost in the week and all these doubts came up and I forgot who I am and it's not working. And because, again, the momentum of, of self-doubt and ideas and spiritual concepts is like a locomotive, basically. It's just endless propulsion that needs to be seen through many times, I feel, and in my experience, before the knowing of my freedom is more convincing and doubtless than the power of the momentum of the doubts that can come in. If the Super Bowl gave you the halftime show instead of Coldplay and Beyonce, and you got up there and, and told every half a billion people that they're already free and, <laughs> and so on, we wouldn't necessarily have half a billion enlightened people out there all of a sudden. No. And, no. you know, so, no. so aside from the, that initial glimpse or, or recognition or understanding that you're already free. What would you prescribe as a means of, you know, rooting out those doubts and, and stabilizing that certainty or that clarity? First of all, I, I, I suggest that people dig one hole. And if they feel that they've seen, recognized something true from what I share, then stick with this one hole. Because what we do as seekers is we dig a little hole five inches and get a little water and then we don't feel the gush of the big fountain of water. So we start digging a bunch of other holes and we never get to the, to the well the way that way. So I say if, if I'm working with someone and I say if you recognize what's your, this is true and they, I can see many of them do, I say then don't read other things and don't look at all these YouTube videos and don't meditate. Just do this. That's the first thing I suggest, and I never tell anyone, I just suggest. And then I say, keep coming and meeting me and have some more sessions. And because I, I go through eight or 10 full inquiry sessions with people. Mm -hmm. It's not just a one-time thing. There's, there was until the book came out anyway, eight or 10 sessions. But then after that, I also have groups that meet that a bunch of people who have finished the inquiries can just get together, be together, be on a holiday together, ask questions to, continue to more and more clarify doubts and make it more and more doubtless. I don't want anyone hanging around long. I want them to be finished with me. Also, I don't want any followers or anything. I really want people to be finished, but I also want to be realistic and helpful. So I try to help them until I, they don't need any help anymore. You know? mm -hmm. And you do those groups as online webinars or something? Uh, yes, I do on Skype, and um, unfortunately in India, my internet's not so great, so sometimes there's some Skype troubles. But yes, and we usually have around eight people on those meetings, mm -hmm. eight or ten. But, you know, I, I may end up adding more meetings if, if I start working with more people. I don't know yet. Yeah. Regarding that metaphor of digging one deep hole, of, of course, that's a popular metaphor. But I've also heard, and some people have said that for them, it seems to work to maybe you know, not dig 10 holes, but use 10 tools to dig one deep hole, you know, maybe, oh, okay. maybe a trowel and a shovel and a spade and a backhoe and, you know, just apply different tools. If it works, it works. Yeah, yeah whatever works. Whatever works, I'm, I'm like, I'm all for that. Another thing you said in your book is, um, again, this is a famous uh, saying, if we want freedom as much as a drowning man wants air, here it is, always here. It's um, already here. It's already here. If that's your intention, then you can't fail. It's not possible because you'll recognize that it's here, and if that's what you want, that's where you'll stay. 
It's not a doership, by the way. There's not something you can choose to do that. It's just if that's the overriding intention, like any other overriding intention, if that's the strongest intention, then that's what will prevail. Now, I think some people might wonder, well, okay, but how do you strengthen the intention? I, I want it, but I'm kind of wishy-washy. I want a lot of other things. You know, I'm not like the drowning man who wants air. I feel that my intentions are kind of dissipated or dispersed. There's no door. I'm kind of stubborn about that. I don't think there's a way you can strengthen it. I think frustration and being fed up with suffering and confusion and coming to the point where you just want to know what's true because you're finished for whatever reason it is. Or if something happens, an illness or something that just spontaneously happens to you. I, I'm very serious in my view that there is no doer that can do something like strengthen their intention, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's a funny thing. I mean, there's, there's no doer who could go out and buy your book. That's right. But one might somehow find oneself on Amazon, <laughs> just clicking. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Listen, and I go through this inquiry with people, and I say, did you choose to be a spiritual seeker? And I say, let's go. Let's find out. What's the very first thing? Something happened at some point of your life that made you become a spiritual seeker. What's the first thing? Someone says, well... Something shifted in my consciousness. And I say, did you make that happen? No, I didn't. It just happened, right? Or someone says, someone handed me a book on Zen and something about that book attracted me. And I say, did you choose to be attracted or did it just attract you? And they say, well, it just attracted me. And so you see one thing leads to another and there's no point where you choose to do anything. And even people who see me, they, they're flipping around YouTube and, and some people look at my video and for some reason, you know, maybe because they're crazy, I don't know. Mm. For some reason, they, they like what I say and it, it rings a bell. They don't create that. And so then the next outcome of that is the action to write me a letter or something. Would you agree with the following statement that although in reality you don't have free will or choice, if you perceive yourself as having it, exercise it to the best of your ability? Yeah, that sounds great. That sounds good. But I say let's go further and see that there's no self to have. There's no self here that could possibly have free will. If you still believe in self, then I say of course, absolutely try to behave, and that's why there's religion with moralities and right behavior and right all of this stuff. Because people have actually corrupt, distorted that notion that there is no self to excuse mm -hmm. very inexcusable behavior. You know, they've then used, I say they they've used the, it as a license to do you know, bad things. So. Then I say they don't really haven't recognized it. Because if you recognize there's no self and you lack nothing, then why would those bad things appear for you? You know that old saying, the devil made me do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Great excuse. I've used it a few times myself. Right. This thing about self, I, maybe let's talk about this thing about self for a minute, because I think there's a bunch of misunderstandings about this. And maybe it's obvious to you, I don't know, and maybe obvious to some of your listeners. But I'll say it anyway, because I know it's not obvious to some people. The idea that we have, we have to transcend the self, you know, or kill the self or kill the ego or something. There is a basic presumption there that there's a self that has to be killed. <laughs> I say there's no such thing as transcending something that isn't. When you come to recognize your essential nature is free and also come to know in a real way that there's only now. When I say there's only now, it's not a platitude. There's only now. 
And if there's only now, then there can't be any self because self is based on time, my past history, my future. So when we know there's only now, then we see that there is actually no self. We can see clearly for ourselves. There is no self story. This is only a myth. So self is a myth, just like Santa Claus is a myth. So I say the idea that you need to transcend or kill self is like me saying to you, Rick, go kill Santa Claus. Yeah. So maybe killing the self, what that really means is kind of like breaking through the uh, delusion that there is one. Um, yes, it's know what's true. Know yeah. what's true and truth will set you free. I heard a story it's, about a little girl who drew a picture of a monster, right? And she put it up on her bedroom wall. And then, you know, her father or somebody heard her crying and, and when she was supposed to be sleeping and he came in and, you know, he said, well, what's the problem? She said, I'm afraid of the monster. <laughs> so, her father, so her father, let's take it down, you know. <laughs> there be nothing it, to be it's a great metaphor. I, I use a similar one as well. It's absolutely true. You turn on the light and you see it's just a guy with a sheet. There's no ghost. Yeah. Turn on the light and you see there is no self. This big, scary, demonized monster that we have to kill is, it doesn't exist because there's only now. And where is it? Let's, I say, let's get real, you know, let's be serious and be mature and jump off all of those beliefs. But it needs to be, I'm just speaking to you because I know you get this, but it needs to be seen clearly through inquiries, actually. I can't just say it to someone. It has to be seen clearly through inquiries. Right. And actually, there's another good, good metaphor we could throw in here is how do you get rid of the darkness in a room? Do you analyze it? Do you right. tr like try to push it out the door or something like that? Or do you just turn on the light and then, boof, it's gone? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. You didn't get rid of darkness. You just turned on light. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Add a second element, so to speak. That goes back to the pure purification thing. I get a little extreme maybe sometime, but I say at the end of the day, that's that's the truth of purifying yourself as well. At the end of the day, maybe you're right. All those years have some purification process. But at the end of the day, when it's time to jump, you see that you essentially here and now are already pure. There's no smudge or stain on you, actually. Yeah. I think it's one of those paradoxical things. You know, Ramana was fond of saying, and he didn't coin the term, that it takes a thorn to remove a thorn. And there's an old Zen saying, which I've often quoted, which uh, someone said, uh, enlightenment may be an accident, but spiritual practice makes you accident prone. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's like one of yeah, those things which ultimately is maybe meaningless or absurd or unnecessary, but it serves a sort of a transitional function for a great many people. Like, for instance, in your, in your book there, you say it, it takes a great maturity to recognize, but a far greater maturity to be finished. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, how does one actually become more mature? You don't. There's no doer. It just happens when you're frustrated. I say the the maturity I'm speaking about is not like the normal maturity we're speaking of. The maturity I'm speaking about is you've tried and done whatever it is, however much it is that you've had to try and do. For some people, it's 40 years of meditating. For some people, one person I work with only read one book, The Power of Now, and was seeking in science. And he was just ready. That's all he needed. Mm -hmm. And he was ready to be finished. So he was as mature as someone who meditated 40 years so it has nothing to do with age or anything like that. It's just when one is ready to be finished, they're ready. You get what you get when you get it. I yeah. have a friend online who says that, and that's a beautiful saying. There's no doer here. 
Yeah, I'm going to say something now that you're not going to like. I like it. <laughs> Which is that, and I'm not advocating comparison here, but there is such a thing as levels of spiritual development or levels of maturity, and we actually all come into this life at different levels and pick up where we left off, so to speak, and Gita talks about that. And so the guy who's meditated 40 years might not be as mature in terms of the kind of the way we're using the term as some as that guy who just picked up the book for the first time. He he actually might be a much more advanced soul. So now you can now you can try to pick that apart because I know you don't like no, that I, way of speaking. No, I won't pick it apart because Ramana says the same thing, and I'll just say I have no idea. Right. I only know this now. I don't know anything about past lives or karma from past lives and everything. So I'm not going to deny it. Ramana said that. I don't take yeah. everything Ramana says for granted, but he's certainly very respected, and I also respect yeah. him. And he may so, have been speaking from actual his own actual cognition, or he may have actually been speaking the, on the on the shoulders of his tradition. Who knows? Exactly. I would never deny someone else's experience. If that's their experience, that's their experience. And if that's their knowing, that's their knowing. So I, as I say, I can only speak for myself, and I have no knowing of that kind of thing. Yeah. And my, my feeling is that I really just don't know why some people are just ready or, or not. And I think it's an easy concept because our minds want something to understand, a, ph a philosophy to grasp onto, mm -hmm. which says, well, because he was meditating in his formal life, that's why he was ready. We want some explanation to know. We want to know. But I say, how about not knowing anything? How about just being in the unknown? And you just don't know. Yeah. And that's the way we talk about skepticism before. Yeah, or as I said earlier, hold it lightly. You know, it's an interesting theory. It kind of explains a lot of things, but do we really know? Yeah, exactly. I say to you even, if I say to myself, if I'm honest, I really don't know if yeah. that's true or not. I've read it, but what does that mean to me? So I always say to the people I work with, what do you know for yourself? It doesn't matter what I know or Ramana or anyone else. What do you know? And then be finished with me. That's the way I, I see things like that. Well, then again, I don't know that there are black holes. I've never experienced one, and I don't, I don't have the scientific knowledge to have proven it in any way. But I kind of trust the guys who, so many of them have said, yeah, there are. We know, we know about them, and here's why, and so on. I mean, there are whole TV shows where little kids remember in remarkable detail the details of their previous life, and then they take, they take the kid to that location, and he names all kinds of things. You know? So there, there is a fair amount of evidence. Yes, but there could be maybe alternative explanations. Our, our simplest explanation is reincarnation. Maybe, and I'm not saying this is true, but maybe that person has very psychic abilities and just got images of some things now, not in the past life, and yeah. just recognizes them. I'm not saying that's true either. I'm saying, but what about that? Maybe that's another possibility. The simplest one we know of is reincarnation, so our minds go immediately to that as if we know something, but we don't know if that's true actually either. Yeah, it seems yet. like it would be, and I think it's cool if it is. But I, <laughs> I think it's a good attitude. A couple questions came in. Here's one from a guy named John in uh, Texas. Is it possible that the search is not really over, but that he found a comfort zone and just stopped looking? Mm -hmm. That's an interesting question. Is there a difference? Well, let's see. <laughs> I would say, if you're asking me that question, I have, in my own experience, found it convenient to distinguish between seeking and 
exploration. It's like oh, yeah. during the seeking phase, there was always this sort of desperate, unfulfilled, gotta get sure. it, you know, I'll just die if I don't. And then that somehow dissipated and, and dissolved and disappeared. And now it's more like, whoa, what an adventure, you know? Uh, it's a joy to just continue. To Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, and if, someone, and, and if that's what someone's interest is, that's great. Mine is maybe from music or something I explore in music, and, and you maybe explore in other aspects, and other people explore in other aspects. So that's certainly true what you're saying. But as far as is there an end of seeking, and I, I have to say there is, you know, and I think the people that are close to me that know me, and first of all, they know I'm very human, I'm not perfect, but I'm not seeking. I'm not trying to transcend this basic humanity. I don't think there's anything transcendent than this right here. This is it. I'm home in my own knowing, in my own being. And I don't think I'm lacking anything. I don't think I'm incomplete or unwhole. And I don't think anyone else is superior or inferior to me either. I just am at ease with who I am. So I say there is no need for seeking any longer. Well, let me play with that. You are superior to me as a guitar player. I once learned how to play Gloria, those three chords. You remember that song? <laughs> but that's about I don't know those three. So but I'm probably superior to you as a drummer. I used to be a drummer in a rock band. Oh. You know, in the relative world, there are hierarchies. There are strengths and weaknesses, all the rest. Absolutely. But I, I can look at a guitar player like Tommy Emmanuel, who I don't even, not even convinced that guy's a human being. He's so amazingly good. Mm -hmm. And in the past, I would be envious, but I just revel in the beauty of this expression of incredibleness but that doesn't mean i believe i'm below him as a human being not as a human being but maybe as a guitar player of course as a guitar player he's far better a guitar player than i am but it doesn't make me feel inferior at all honestly and i don't think we should feel inferior to ramana maharshi or the buddha or anything else right? inferiority is not useful but that is not to say that they have not sort of ascended to a, a more mature level of spiritual development than we have and i'm speaking for myself i don't know about you Oh, I don't compare myself in that way. I just know that I know my essential nature is free, and I think Ramana's essential nature is free. And he's one of the great spiritual sages of all times, and I'm not. And that's fine with me. <laughs> so that begs the question, can you be more free? <laughs> Are there degrees of freedom? No. no, I think it's pretty free to admit that and be completely at ease. That's fine. <laughs> that's just the way I, this is me. I'm me. I'm Sal, you know. Sal is never going to be Ramana Maharshi. He doesn't care to be Ramana Maharshi. He's just happy to be himself. Yeah. What you said a minute ago, there's no transcendent reality, this is it. Is that, is that the way you put it? Here it is from your book. You said, we've read or heard that there's some transcendent place like heaven or some transcendent consciousness. We've read these things, but in truth, what we know is this, form, with its ordinary yeah. consciousness. That's right. I always go back to the thing. I only know what I actually know here and now. The only thing I know is here and now. And here and now, what I know is this, aware consciousness with form all in the same time that's all i actually know if, if there's some transcendence it must be a thought in my mind that's going to happen sometime in the future or someplace else but it has to be a fantasy because here and now what i know is this yeah well you know what i would say to that is i mean look at what physics tells us they tell us that you know this stuff which appears physical is mm -hmm. actually 99.9999% empty space, you know? So it's, it's not what it appears to be. Right. And there are some physicists who say, well, ultimately, if you get right down to the bedrock or all, all the, the real nitty gritty, the ultimate reality, it's actually consciousness. They try to equate consciousness with the unified field and so on. So it's, it's not exactly true to say that 
what we know is this form with its ordinary, that this is what is real because we're actually only perceiving it through a lens darkly, as the Bible says. Um, we're not really sort of necessarily apprehending the true nature of what we're experiencing. Yes, but we come to know something, and, and you're right, and I use the example myself. If, if my eyeballs were electron microscopes, what would I see is nothing but space. I wouldn't see an arm. Right, right. I'd see space. But the eyeballs themselves are not electronic microscopes. For whatever reason, I don't know why, they perceive at a particular gross level. Yes. And because they perceive at a particular gross level, the brain puts together this space into a apparent form which I know is not solid, and I know it's mostly space, but I exist and I, I live in this play of, in this Maya, you know, the play of Leela. Whether it's solid or not, which I know it's not, this is my experience here and now. And the saying absolute and form, I say, that's why I say the absolute and form are not separate. This form, an electron microscope, and the, and the scientists tell us that there's actually consciousness as a space, I agree. This form is actually space in a consciousness itself, appearing as form because of the gross level of my human perceptions. Right. But is your experience limited to your human perceptions? Yes. I would say my experience is limited to my human perceptions. Although I've had experiences that appear to be transcendent, but those experiences have come and gone. And as special as they've seemed during the time that they've come and gone, they can't be that special because they happened to me and to others. And so I don't place as much value on anything that comes and goes anymore as I place in this moment right now, you know. But if you say you know your true nature, you're not knowing it through your eyeballs, you're not knowing it through, no. your, through any of your senses, you're not even knowing it through your intellect. It's knowing itself in a way, mm -hmm. right? Yes, the knowing, the knowing itself is the essential. The knowing itself. Right. See, it's very, very possible and obvious to come to this realization that I know the knowing that I hear is that's here now is self-evident. Knowing itself is knowing, and that this knowing is essentially my my essential being. Is this knowing? And of course, that's not using the senses. It's using the knowing which the senses appear in. Does that make sense? It does. And it's, in language, you have to be careful when you start talking about oh, this boy. stuff because it's easy to yeah. start saying, well, your experience and, and so on. And we're, yeah. not, we're not talking about any. And that implies sensory engagement. And we're not talking about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But exactly. there is another, if you can kind of like pardon my use of the word, there is another dimension to your experience other than what your senses can provide. I don't know if we want to use the word transcendental or, or there's some faculty of knowing or maybe not even faculty self knows itself by itself and somehow the instrumentality of you of Salvador Poe has become capable of allowing that knowing to take place I don't think Salvador Poe <laughs> I knew I was getting in trouble there no, I'm not <laughs> saying he does I'm saying the, in a, the instrument I have to look into it myself to, okay to see yeah because yeah. Salvador Poe knowing it would, would make it an object but Salvador Poe is only an appearance the play of Leela the Maya the self that is actually not actual, but that I fully embrace as the play, as if I was Ju Romeo on stage. Mm -hmm. I fully embrace this play called Salvador, this story called Salvador. I fully embrace it, knowing fully that it's a myth, that it's a play. So that possibly can't know anything. The knowing itself knows that. Yes, which is what all the scriptures say. You know, the, the Gita, for I guess instance, self knows itself by itself. 
Because for, for Salvador to know it, it would have to be a thing that's separate from Salvador. For Salvador to know it, other than in the play, which and there's no real Romeo either, other than there's an actor playing Romeo. Yeah. And I'm the actor. There's the actor playing Salvador or knowing the acting of Salvador, whatever. But not denying it either. I'm just awareness or something like silly like this. You know, not denying it either because it's apparent. I'm not saying it's solid and real, empirically true, as, but it's apparently true, isn't it? And so why deny it? Why deny the experience that's right here now? Yeah. The thing you said about the eyeballs a little while ago, a few minutes ago, just, uh, you know, being so designed as to register gross impressions, you know, the gross creation and so on. I would like to suggest to you, not, not as anything we can resolve right now, but as a possible direction for future growth, that many uh, spiritual explorers have said that that limitation eventually um, begins to get refined and the, the the senses begin to experience not just the gross but more refined and refined and refined levels of uh, of creation and eventually that one as if experiences oh, okay. experiences the finest relative the celestial realm and then even experiences the absolute nature of things we were just talking about how this arm is not really an arm it's actually space that, that somehow the senses arrive at a level where everything is experienced in terms of the self in terms of its sort of absolute nature. So, you know, that might possibly be a direction that one might grow after initially knowing oneself. Yeah, it could be, absolutely. You know, I, I don't particularly have an interest to do that, and I think it's a very worthy thing. It sounds kind of yogic to me, like a, a yogic meditational thing, and I've had experiences where I really just perceived myself as, oh, I don't know, it's very subtle, you know, very mm -hmm. subtle particular, I don't know how to put words to it, like not solid. I've had experiences like that. But I, it's not to me a practical way to live, you know, so I don't aspire towards that. Yeah, I wouldn't say one needs to aspire, but um, some of my best friends are yogic. What I mean to say is that, I mean, I have a friend, for instance, who has, who basically realized the self 50 years ago and has found that in his experience over the decades there has been this continuing refinement along the lines of what I was just describing and much more. Okay. So the reason I find that interesting is I think it's good to paint a picture of, the, of possibilities for the full range yeah. of, of human development and never limit it to just this or just this. There, I like that. That's great, Rick. That's good. That sounds great to me. Yeah. I fully concur. Okay. Yes, absolutely. I really have no idea what will happen in my experience in the coming years. Yeah, you never know. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't close the possibility. I just say that I'm not seeking anything other than what is. And whatever may change in my experience, I think anything like that is very possible. Yeah. Who knows? And obviously you've made a pact with the devil because at 58 you look like you're 30. So you've got plenty of time to, <laughs> to explore all this. <laughs> oh, thank you. A question came in. This is from... Gilberto in Sao Paulo, Brazil. We're getting a lot of questions from Brazil today. If the enlightenment does not change anything in you, if you're still the same person, and did not become an even more relaxed person physically and mentally, which he feels, this person, through the simple practice of Zazen, then what is the meaning of writing books and telling the world about it if you continue to be the same? In other words, I guess he's saying if it doesn't make it better in some way, then what's the value of it? I never said it doesn't make it better. It makes it a lot better, a lot better, a lot more relaxed, a lot more at ease. And as I said before, when I first recognized that, the relief that poured off my body was untold relief. 
so it, it makes my life, ex my experience of living is much better than it was before, much more at ease. And there, of course, there are moments of whatever can appear, but overall, much more at ease. But see, it's more than just my experience, uh, my, my sort of sensorial experience like that. Before we wake up, there's a lot of pathology in our minds and there's a lot of malignancy. Look at the shape of the world. But a person who comes to know their essential nature is free and is lacking nothing, is complete and whole, is for the most part, and I never make absolutes, for the most part, much more benign yeah. as a person, a much more benign expression in this world. So even to say that enlightenment, so-called, which I don't use the word, so use it anyway, or awakening, whatever you want to say, to me, it's given me a lot of relaxation and much happier and, you know, overall and no more seeking, much more at ease. But more than that, it's taken a lot of malignancy out of the world. So it really is beneficial for others, not just myself. I think that's a great point, you know, because you hear a lot of people saying, well, if you're an asshole, you're going to be an enlightened asshole, you know. But I, then you're not enlightened. <laughs> right. I really think it does have an impact on your personality and your behavior. Mm -hmm. It does. It absolutely does. And but that doesn't mean I'm perfect. No, I can sometimes say something stupid. But for the most part, I always say, I'm much more uh, benign than I used to be, and much less malignant presentation to this world than I used to be, and I think it's true for everyone who wakes up. Well, like we quoted Jesus earlier, you know, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. They knew not what yeah. they were doing because they knew not what they were, you know, but then if you come to know what you are, you're probably not going to get a job nailing, putting nails on people <laughs> and stuff. That's exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And that's why he says they don't know, they know not what they do. They don't know their essential nature is free and they don't need to do this kind of thing, you know. And what you said just now actually has exciting implications for the world. I know you don't like to speculate too much, but you know, no, we, we live in a world true. with a lot of violence and a lot of problems and so on. And, and I kind of feel like the spiritual renaissance will really be the ultimate antidote to all this stuff. Well, I don't know what will happen or if it will ever happen, but if everyone right now was finished seeking and knew they lacked nothing, there would be no Dick Cheney's in this world, would there be? Yeah. yeah. You know, I always like to point him out. <laughs> yeah. He's really done a lot of bad things, and it's not his fault either. There's no doer. But if everyone knew they lacked nothing and they're complete and whole, there would be so much, or maybe no, greed and thirst for power and abuses in this world, would there be? But I don't speculate that that's going to happen. I have no idea, you know. We can only see for ourselves, we can only awaken ourselves, not that there's a doer, but it only happened to an individual. I can't predict what's going to happen to everyone else. Well, you know, I mean, a forest can only be green if each individual tree is green. You can't have a green, yeah. green forest if all the trees are withered. And, Absolutely. And there does seem to be a proliferation of awakening mm -hmm. and interest in awakening and so on among more and more and more individuals. So one can only hope for the society. I think you're right. There does seem to be, and, and the internet's been an amazing thing for that, isn't it? Because even when I started seeking, I didn't really, it didn't know much about the internet, and there wasn't much on. I had to go to foreign countries to meet teachers, which I did because I was very dedicated. And these days, it's all over the internet, so that's a very good, I'd say. I yeah. think it's very good. And even though there's probably a lot of not such great stuff, I think there's also a lot of good stuff out there as well. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of funny cat videos, and then there's Buddha at the gas pump. <laughs> the funny cat videos are, are they're, they're very positive, you know. They make people feel good, and it's nice. <laughs> yeah. There's a great one of a cat riding around on a Roomba wearing a shark suit. Got millions uh, of views. That's great. <laughs> 
We've covered quite a bit. I'm sure we could cover more. In your book, a lot of it is transcripts of sessions you've had with people where you put them through these little exercises and you have them do what you call holidays, which is like just taking a break from the usual engagement in, in our activity and our perception and looking within or just checking in to see if this or that. Well, I wouldn't say like that, but yes, but having it, yes. Okay. Yeah. Obviously, people decide to call you up and do Skype sessions. You'll do some of that kind of thing with them. But is there anything you could do with the general audience that you would like to do here in the interview? I could lead through the, a very basic holiday so people can um, maybe have a basic recognition of something that's here and now. Yeah, why don't you do that, keeping in mind that you're speaking to, you know, ultimately thousands of people okay. who are going to be watching this. So then I would say let's, and just being relaxed, there's no med meditation and stiffness, keep the eyes open and just in a relaxed way, just for a moment only, a few seconds, just relax the focus of attention so that attention is not focused on anything in particular and that aware this attention is just freely open and we'll just do that for a moment a few seconds what we see very quickly is maybe a thought comes in and then attention goes to that thought and then attention in that moment becomes exclusive to that thought no problem that's a perfectly natural function of this form we're not demonizing it or trying to change it I just we're going to see something maybe notice something a little different so once we've noticed that we're attending to thoughts as soon as we notice once again just relax the focus of attention and allow aware to be open here So then let's start noticing just a few simple things. We don't have a lot of time, but we'll notice a few little things here. What we notice, firstly, is that what is, is aware. Aware. You can't deny it, right? Simple, ordinary, everyday, aware. You notice that. Again, thoughts come in and we attend to thoughts, no problem. When we notice it, we have a holiday, aware. So then let's notice a few more things here. When we're not exclusively focused on one thing in particular, like thoughts, when we relax the focus of attention, we see everything is included here, isn't it? Everything, all the objects in the room, my voice, the body, your body, your thoughts, they're all included. Nothing is excluded. I think that's probably pretty clear. See, we're coming to know some things. So the way I work is I start very simple like this, and we come to know very simple things. and. Step by step, we come to know more things about our essential being. So for now, we've noticed a couple things that when I relax the focus of attention, attention is not, aware is not exclusive, it includes everything here. Let's notice some more things. 
This which is aware here is not a thing, is it? That's why I don't call it awareness, because it's not an object. It's simply aware. And as simply aware is not an object, aware is not bound to anything, is it? So then we can say that aware is free. We can use that word, freely aware. And what's more, we see that aware is here and now only. It's not a time and it's not a place, but here and now we can say aware is. This which is aware, which includes everything, which is here and now always, is the same now as it was five minutes ago, if you had looked, isn't it? And it's not changed. And it's the same as it will be in five minutes if you look again, aware, here, free, all-inclusive, now. And all of the objects here are changing. They're all changing. But this aware is not changing. Is it? Let's look into self for a moment. Because I say self, this ego self thing is a story. It has to do with time. It has to do with time, right? The story of Salvador, where he came from, all his past experiences, the poor me stories, the great me stories, all of the things that happened in Salvador's past, so-called past, and Salvador's future aspirations and goals and future enlightenments and all these things. This story of Sal, this self, this is self, isn't it? Self, self. Let's have a holiday now. Look, here and now. There's only now, right? Look, now. Where is this self? Let's get real. Where is it? It isn't. It's a myth. Otherwise, you have to show me where the past is, and I don't see any past, I don't see any future, I see now. That story of Sal, that whole past me story and future me story is just a fantasy for adults. We play that story. But I just say for a moment here now, just for a moment, not forever, just for a moment, just to see something that's a little more essential and a little more actual here and now, there is no self story, is there?
I'm not sure how much further to go, Rick. That's good. That's good. Gives people a taste. This is the beginning, and this really leads to more clear recognition of what this is, you know. And usually when you're doing that with people, it's a little bit more interactive, and they're kind of responding to your questions and stuff. But I just wanted to let you run through some of that just to give people a taste. Okay. Thanks. I think that was a good idea. Okay. Well, this has been a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Me too, Rick. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful that you invited me. Thank you. Let me make a few wrap-up points. I've been speaking with Salvador Poe. I will be creating a page on batgap.com for this interview, which will have some of his biographical information, link to his book, link to his website. Websites, isn't it? Don't you have a couple of them? Well, I have a music website, and then the Liberation Is Inquiry website. And so that's liberationis.com, is it? Yeah. I'll be linking to that, but in case you're just listening, it's liberationis.com, which is also the name of his book. Or if you go to salvadorpo.com, then you'll you see, see both a link to it. Yeah. Both sites. Nicely designed book, by the way. My wife does book cover design or has in the past, and when she saw this one, she thought, wow, a good book cover for a change. My girlfriend came up with the egg concept. Oh, that she did. that's good. Yeah. Yeah, the yeah. cosmic egg. So for some reason, a lot of times, spiritual people design really lousy book covers. But <laughs> I is, did. I did. <laughs> this is a nice one. It's like they're trying to discourage people from picking up the book. Yeah. <laughs> As I mentioned in the beginning, uh, this is an ongoing series, which most of you listening or watching this know, and um, there are hundreds of them now. So if you go to batgap.com, you'll see them all archived uh, under the past interviews menu. Then also there is an audio podcast of this, and just about as many people listen to the audio as watch the video. So feel free to subscribe to that. There's a link on the site. If you just watch this on YouTube, some, some people just um, don't even bother to come to backcap.com. They just subscribe <laughs> on YouTube to the channel, and they get notified by YouTube every time there's a new interview. So you could do that, too. But we'd like you to come there to Backgap because there's a lot of interesting stuff. There's even like a ringtone for your phone and a screensaver and things like that. And there's also the donate button, which, as I mentioned in the beginning, is um, kind of essential for us to uh, support this whole enterprise. It's made totally available to everyone for free, but it relies upon voluntary donations for its continuance. So again, thanks for listening or watching, and thanks to you, Sal, and uh, I'm really glad that your internet connection worked out and we had a great conversation. Yeah, we got lucky. It's been a rough week with this internet, I tell you. I was concerned for a while. But. Yeah. Well, your internet is better than Andrew Harvey's was, and he's over in Chicago, and, and he was having oh, wow. and your, your, yours is like twice as clear, ten times as oh, clear as his voice. Or, or this other guy that I interviewed in uh, North Carolina last week, Norio, it's like he was having all these internet problems. Oh, wow. So I'm encouraged about the... Po For years I've been saying I don't want to interview people in India because they won't have a good internet connection, but you've inspired me to check it out. Good, good. I'm sure there's lots of great people to speak to here. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Sal, and thanks thank to those... Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, and thanks to those who've been listening or watching, and we'll see you next time.